The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Susan Imhoff Bird. Her new book out from Tory House Press is Howl of Woman and Wolf. At a crossroads in her own personal life, she was drawn to wolves and set out to explore the passions and controversies surrounding nature's most fascinating predator. She shares her personal triumphs, her self-doubt, and difficult scenes from her past, caring for a son with cerebral palsy whose blue eyes won't meet her own, stripping wallpaper with a husband whose hidden layers have built up a barrier, a long, dark night of pain while recovering from a severe bicycle accident. Along the way, she interviews ranchers and park personnel, wolf watchers, biologists and families, uncovering a range of emotions, from admiration and reverence to wolves to vitriol and anxiety toward wolves and all that they have come to signify. And uh, Susan Imhoff-Bird finds inspiration in Utah's stunning canyons, valleys, and water-sculpted rock. She's the mother of three, owner of a gratitude-based business, and she's fascinated by human interactions. When not riding, reading, trying to meditate, or attempting yoga asanas, she can be found on her bicycle or snowshoes, snowshoes rather. And the website is susanimhoffbird.com. Susan Bird joins us in studio. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for coming up. You live in Salt Lake? I do. Area. Uh, fascinating book. Um, I'd like to jump right in, have you read uh, just a couple of paragraphs from the, the very first page. You set the scene. You're on a bike ride. I'm, I guess that's that's quite often with you. Yes, that riding. is quite often. <laughs> I'm on my bike, and it's uh, it's the end of winter, and it's kind of a ritual that I do that has to do with my son who's passed away. And you're on a road. It's it's as you say, it's it's the end of winter, but not quite melted. And you've ridden up to a place where it's the farthest you can go because right. the, the rest is snowed in. Right. And, uh, so, have you read this for you? Okay, I dismount. Snow covers the road and lies on gray branches and leans against boulders. It clings to clumps of autumn's late grasses. I walk my bike from the last clear patch of asphalt to the road's edge. I lean it against the trunk of a gnarled scrub oak, its bark cracked and scarred. Below my handlebars, attached by a loop of zip tie, dangles a small metal cylinder. The container is just over two inches tall, an inch in diameter. I peel off my gloves to unscrew the lid. I hold the open tube and walk to the snowy edge of the road where scrub oak grow thickly down the hill. I shake some of Jake's ashes into my hand, then send them floating out over the crusty snow. I love you, Jake. I miss you. He is everywhere here. I walk to the other side of the road where the red dirt hillside soars and scatter the rest of the ashes over the scarlet earth, the snow patches, a stream of meltage running in the berm. He's been gone three years and three months, he would have turned 22 today. He is 22. This is my third observance of this ritual, my solitary ceremony, me, Jake. We meet here, surrounded by what appears dormant, but is filled with life. Moose and deer stand motionless, hidden by willows and pines, as though they honor this quiet ceremony. A beaver silences its gnawing. A squirrel pauses. A magpie gazes my way and keeps its peace. All I hear is trickling water. Even the wind has calmed its constant whistle through bare branches. These gray trees, not a bud in sight, will burst into thousands of leaves unfolding with green life in mere weeks. I breathe in crisp air, then let it go. The silence is broken by birdsong, a solo. 
The canyon walls press, constrict. My lungs no longer burn, but my chest aches. A whisper, somewhere else. Go, leave, head north, true north. When I married Daniel eight months ago, I thought we would share this, that he'd be here beside me. But instead, I am more alone than before. I ache today for Jake. But I'm devastated by my failure to create the relationship I crave and need, the profound connection I thought was finally in my life. I sprinkle ashes. I write Jake's name with my finger in the snow at the edge of the road. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about uh, Jake. Um, Jake was my first child. He was actually a twin, and uh, they suffered from twin-to-twin transfusion, transfusion syndrome, which is quite rare, but usually one twin suffers. And uh, in my case, Jake's twin died right before I went into labor, and so Jake was born early. He suffered a severe cerebral cerebral hemorrhage, and as a result, he had uh, a number of challenges, including a seizure disorder and uh, quite severe cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. Lived on for 22 years? Uh, 19. 19 years, years. okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, 22, three three years after, yes. (laughs) So 19 years and uh, a lot of difficulties, but joys as well with your... Yes, I mean, he uh, he loved to be held. He was a very uh, grace-filled child. And uh, he brought a lot to many, many lives, mine included, but it was also, you know, the challenge of not being able to really connect with a human being that you love is difficult. That's a theme, I think. You you, you (laughs) make a reference to to Daniel there. You're not able to establish a connection with him. Right. Not as deep as I needed. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, You're at a crossroads. I don't know if you realize this when you when you set out to to go in search of the wolf. Probably not. Mm-hmm. I probably wasn't quite so aware of how I, I knew that the marriage was a challenge and not working in the way I needed it to, but I didn't realize just how how prevalent this crossroads was across not just marriage but other issues. Mm-hmm. So tell me about this project. I mean, you know, some of us might read about wolves and the reduction of wolves and the you know Endangered Species Act and delisting or not of, of the wolf you go you go on a journey i did <laughs> what where did that come from why why did you want to do that it actually was a suggestion of the publisher they are a environmentally based publisher and concerned with issues of conservation in our landscape and uh, they thought that uh publishing a book about wolves would be something they wanted to do and it just so happened they knew me I was available and they said would you consider doing this I said sure Mm -hmm. and his joke is then I went on to say what's a wolf (laughs) (laughs) right right and of course you 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 can't be in the west without having wolves on your consciousness somehow right either the controversy or right you're a rancher and they're eating your sheep or or you're (laughs) you know an environmentalist and wanting to, to protect them right Tell me about your first sighting. You're in Lamar Valley. In Lamar Valley, it's uh, in June, and we are driving along the road and seeing knots of cars and people uh, pulled off on the side and all these scopes on tripods, tripods and people with cameras. And, and, uh, and so as we're driving past, I'm getting anxious about, wait, maybe they're seeing something. We should stop. We should stop. But... Um, uh, the person who was driving kept on going, and finally he pulled into a pullout, and we stopped, and there were just, I don't know, 30 or 40 people there, and they were all focused on the valley, and and so I asked someone who uh, 
had a scope uh, set up, and I said, what are you looking at? And she said, oh, it's Middle Gray's daughter. <laughs> so these people know the wolves by name, by number, and uh, there was a wolf out in the valley uh, eating a bison, a baby bison carcass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, that's this is nature. Yes, Right, yes. the uh, bison died that a wolf might live, uh, you know, eating eating this carcass. The other thing that strikes me about this, you, I guess, you can go out to Lamar Valley and, you know, set up a scope, and you're in the wild, kind mm-hmm. of, but you, right. it's kind of like you're watching television as well. You but you're watching nature. Right. What was your experience? Right. Um. I. I mean, it was so foreign to me. I had never done anything like this, and uh, there is that really uh, kind of surreal aspect of it that you're looking through this scope at something that's taking place hundreds of yards away and uh, and yet it's the closest you're probably ever going to get mm-hmm. to a wolf right quite elusive right right do you think that's what people you know then their cars lined up you know it's hard to get down the road because everybody's pulled over and right. looking at this, what, what are they searching for? <laughs> well, that, that was actually, as I um, started doing the whole research for this project, um, they left it wide open. They said, you know, we want to write a book or we want to publish a book about wolves, whatever comes to you. And so uh, I entered my research with that question, what is it that I find interesting in this? And what I came to uh, during that first month of exploring the whole issue was that I was curious about what it was that pulled us humans to that connection with wild. Why do we love that? Why do we need that? Why are people standing on the roadside looking through little teeny scopes at at animals that are, you know, 300 yards away? And um, what it, I, there's just something powerful in seeing that wildness. Just something, I guess, that's Speaks to us. It does, right? or it at does. least most of it. I guess there are probably people who it doesn't speak to, but right. But still, even the uh, one thing that came up, uh, we were talking about why people choose to live in the wilds of Montana. Even the ranchers and hunters who aren't happy with the wolves, they still choose to live in a wild place, and they still love to hear that howl mm. in the dark of night. Yeah, what is it about that howl? You, that's the title of your book, Howl. Right. right. Well, um, for me, the howl has to do with me rediscovering my voice and being able to acknowledge that I have a right to be here and my story is my story and mm. I get to own that. Um, but the howl itself is just fascinating. We actually met some uh, wolf biologists who are researching the howl and why it happens, how it happens, how they're different, and uh, no one has the answer. We mm-hmm. all think we know. Yeah. Well, let's hear a howl. We uh, we went to the internet, and uh, Bennett got a got a howl for us. Let's let's hear this. There's a lot going on there. It's it's. Uh, I, I could imagine myself out in the wild, unprotected. That would be chilling. 
Definitely. And I imagine many people over millennia have <laughs> felt that experience, right. uh, that emotion. Right. What, what went through your mind as you heard that? Oh, I just got chills. And I, I do every time. Mm-hmm. What, what's behind the chills? What do you? Oh, it's just some, um, I just think it's a deeply innate reaction to um, another sentient being. Mm. There's a reason for that howl. And it's a communication. And I, I think, you know, we just don't have all the tools to understand it, but we yeah. want to. And there are people studying. Definitely. Why wolves howl and what 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 the meaning is. Right. It's hard not to anthropomorphize. A- absolutely. And yet sometimes we do it. I, right. don't, I don't know what your reaction is. Well, I, I read something wonderful uh, just a few months ago. I wish I could remember the author where she uh, she was talking about that very process of how we anthropomorphize. And she said it's actually quite selfish of us and naive of us to not. Mm. Really? Yeah. To not? Mm-hmm. She wants more of a connection? Well, so I think she's saying who are we to say that these creatures are not thinking, loving, creative, intelligent beings? Mm-hmm. How, yeah. You know, we're, we're being uh, superior in, in saying that, oh, they can't have thoughts like that. Right. Uh, and a part of it's the mystery, right? We right. don't know, and I don't know if we can know. Right. Right. Uh, even if you stick an electrode on a wolf's brain, you, you, you We'll know. never know. Um, tell me about uh, 06. Is it 06? 06 is, uh, yes, was one of the most famous wolves in the park in the, in the last decade, I think. And uh, her name is actually because she was born in 2006 and uh, she became an alpha female of a pack and was killed when she left the park on what we assume was probably a hunting expedition and she was outside park borders and legally shot by a hunter 15 miles out outside Uh, the borders yeah mm -hmm. and the 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 alpha male i think was also killed right exactly Uh, and and his brother so the, the the pack was, I don't know, in, in distress. Yeah. Right, decimated. And it took them a while to reform, which happens a lot yeah. when an alpha is killed. Now, uh, I guess absent humans, wolves would be at the top of the <laughs> chain, would they? Uh, or, or do they have predators? Well, they don't specifically have predators, but a grizzly is pretty powerful okay. and can rule the environment. Mm-hmm. I think they kind of co, they'll share that right. top of right. the food chain position. And again, it's it's emotions come in, right? I, I don't know. For example, did you talk to ranchers? Did you? I did a few. What, what are their feelings? Um, it I think it really varies, and most that I met and conversed with were willing to work work it out. And uh, my favorite uh, conversation with one of the ranchers in outside of Missoula. He was complaining about uh, the elk, and then he was complaining about the eagles, and then he was complaining about the wolves. So, you know, they're going to complain about mm-hmm. anything that, that is a hassle and a problem and that will kill their livestock. Uh, it's, a, it's an economic loss right. to lose your livestock. Right? right. And they work on very slim margins. You can mm-hmm. understand it. But a, a lot of communities are working very hard to, um, to solve the issue and to work with the uh, wildlife departments in their states to have things like range riders and using fladry, which can uh, scare off a wolf, the flattering flags, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and eliminating bone piles where they yeah. just leave carcasses around. Of course, that's going to attract a predator. Yeah. Uh, what's the attitude of the people, uh, for example, you know, telescoping 
the wolves in Lamar Valley? What's oh. what, what do they think about hunting and protection? Well, I would say some of them um, could actually be on the um, the extreme of wolf protection and believing that any hunting is wrong. Um, most, though, I would say just have such incredible respect for the wildlife that they want it protected to the extent that it can be. They would like to see buffers around the park edges so that, you know, animals from the park won't be killed as they travel, you know, those 5, 10, 15 miles outside. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back uh, more with uh, Susan Imhoff Bird, her book out from uh, Tory House Press is uh, Howl of Woman and Wolf. And uh, at a, uh, a sensitive time in her life, she set out to study the wolf and our attitudes toward wolves, uh, took a trip uh, to Yellowstone and other areas, talked to a lot of people, and um, and took a personal journey as well. We'll talk about both of those. When we come back, I want to have uh, Susan Bird uh, read a bit from, uh, she imagines the ancient wolf millions of years ago and connects us uh, to today. More following the break. Did you know that storytelling skills are linked to reading comprehension? In a recent USU study, children who learn to develop their own stories improve their comprehension and vocabulary. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. I'm Eric Westervelt. In her new collection of short stories, Robin MacArthur explores her native Vermont, and the picture she paints isn't a pretty New England postcard. There's a lot of poverty, and because there are so many tourists and second home residents, there's an inherent clash between the haves and the have-nots. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. This composer of electronic music is inspired by the sounds of his childhood in Alaska. As I learned human music, I was already pretty well familiar with the sounds of the natural world, the sounds of the sea, the sounds of the wind, the various sounds of snow and ice. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Wake up with Good Reason Wednesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking with Susan Bird. Her new book out is Howl of Woman and Wolf. Uh, she's drawn to the wolves' resilience and innate sense of place, and she discovers important personal truths and desires as she learns once more about these often misunderstood uh, creatures. And she sets out on this journey to crossroads in her own life. Uh, the uh, death of uh, her son, who uh, died at 19, uh, he had cerebral palsy, uh, a relationship uh, breaking up, and uh, and uh, just on a personal journey, we'll connect those two things up as well. And uh, Susan Bird, I wonder if you could read, uh, this is from page 7, and you go back a million years for, for the wolf at that time. Right. A million years ago, a blink of the earth goddess's eye, the dire wolf lived in North America. 
From matter had come insectivores and creodents. As time passed and each evolved, the ancestors of animals on Earth today emerged. They lived in a world untamed. Rocky hills and uplifted moraines, flowering plants, scrubby grasses. Conifers, dense and dark, covered the land. Screeches split the air, howls echoed. Thundering hooves, death screams as prey lost to predator. Not a word spoken, just lapping of wind-blown water, splashing creeks, the steady drum of rain on dusty soil. The dire wolf, toes splayed wide, trots between far-flung trees, seeking her pack. Separated during the last hunt, distracted by a stream, seduced by her thirst, she trails the others by half a mile. In the far distance are moving bodies, and she increases her speed. Maybe they've closed in on a bison. Maybe they need her. The pack works together, sometimes as many as 20, 30, trapping a horse or bison, then attacking, their teeth razor sharp and quick to draw blood. Five feet long, from nose to tail, her shoulders are more than two feet from the earth, and she weighs 115 pounds. Her mate is ahead, but she's drawing near. A bison is besieged. He butts the wolves with his huge head, unable to stop them from tearing at his flanks. She reaches the pack and jumps at the dark animal's rear leg, her teeth ripping skin and muscle to scar the bone underneath. When the bison topples, the wump of his body hitting earth vibrates beneath her feet and echoes across the rim-rocked plateau. Then you go on to talk about the gray wolf and how the gray wolf came in and and supplanted the dire wolf. But there's a continuity here for millions of years. Right. um, That precedes humans. Definitely. And may come after us. Is, is that that connection? Well, that's important. That, that's part to, of the fascination? That's a, uh, very important to me. I think uh, the argument about having wolves back on our landscape, uh, to me, very much comes down to they have a right to exist. They were here before us. You know, we chose to get rid of them. And uh, I, I don't know that... Um, I don't believe that that was the right thing to do, and I just believe they have. There's an inherent right to exist. Mm-hmm. And we did get rid of them, didn't we? We, we did. Sometimes forget that that history because of the, this was a reintroduction, right? Twenty years ago, or whatever it was, right? Right. We had uh, killed off most of the wolves, uh, what they call extirpated them by. About the 1920s, some places might have still had one around 1940, a few wolves remain uh, upper Wisconsin and uh, Canada still had plenty of wolves, so sometimes they would trickle across the border. But for the most part, the pioneers just wiped them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were seen as a nuisance, a, a mm-hmm. pest, a, oh, definitely. A, a danger to you know, livestock and, right. and, and to life. To life, they thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what about, and I'm sure you get this question, why, what is about the wolf? Why not the grizzly bear? And there are who some who connect to grizzly bear, the eagle, you know, whatever. What is it about the wolf? I would say that uh, the early uh, Native American peoples tamed some wolves and kept them as pets. And, you know, today we have our dogs. And when you think about the relationship that people have with their pets, with their dogs especially, there's something really... Um, it's a powerful connection for a great number of people. And so the wolf is a canine. And I think there, uh, there's just always been some kind of bond between man and canine. And the wolf is a canine. So I think mm-hmm. that, you know, there's, there's just something, 
again, you know, it's really inexplicable. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think that any of us could take apart our DNA and find the place that says, oh, I like canines. Right. But it's there. Yeah. We, uh, they are a dog. They are. <laughs> dog right. family, yeah. <laughs> and there are, there's an ancient connection, I guess, what you say, between so. humans and dogs. I think so. I want to talk about more of the connection between your personal story and, and your journey with wolves. In fact, you, uh, as you recount the, the birth of your twins, um, you note that that's about the time of the reintroduction of, of the wolf. Right, which is... So all the time that your son Jake is alive, you know, the, this whole controversy with wolves is, is ongoing. Right. Then you embark on this personal journey. How do you connect those those two up? Did, and and what did you get out of it in the end? Well, I think what was powerful for me is that uh, I was researching an animal that was really just trying to be itself. It it The wolf has a... I mean, he's a predator, he, she. Uh, they are a predator, and they tend to be top of the food chain. They have a nature that that it's their job to live out. And I found myself drawn to that because I think I have struggled in much of my life trying to be what everyone else wanted me to be. And yet I have this nature that says, no, I want to be this. But I've uh, had to squash that for a number of different reasons, including, you know, some of my childhood um, and then marriage and then having a a child with so many needs and uh, and then another failed marriage and and so there were there are all these pressures that I took upon myself to kind of squish who I needed to be and so in my research in uh, what I really learned is that this wolf is just trying to be a wolf and he has a right to do that and we need to support that and protect ourselves as you know is as appropriate we don't want them obviously out killing all our cows and sheep but there's a way to work this out we all have the right to be who we're meant to be and so as you say you you're working on your howl that's the title right <laughs> yes tell me about that i guess when you're alone <laughs> because you i imagine you'd be self-conscious right you it, you actually howl um, I do. Mm-hmm. I do. Um, more likely when I'm out uh, on snowshoes. Uh, snow brings it out more than riding my bicycle. But um, there have been times on my bike when I when I know no one's in earshot mm-hmm. that I will try that. And what's, what's the howl? What are you expressing there? I think uh, there's a joyful, a joyful piece of it. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the main part. Do you ever have wildlife or wolves respond? I haven't yet. Mm -hmm. But what's been delightful in the last, uh, this summer, we've had lots of coyotes up uh, Immigration Canyon, which is where I bike a lot. And so there have been at least a handful of mornings where I've heard them yipping and howling. And and I'm too in awe to howl back because I just want to hear it. I don't want to add my own Mm -hmm. voice, but it's a pretty wonderful sound. Do you prefer the wolf's howl to the coyote's howl? I do. It's deeper and a little more... I, I, you can pick up a morning note to mm-hmm. it more than you do in a coyote. Yeah. What, what is your, I guess, lesson sounds uh, too heavy, but what's, what's your, what do you suggest to others then if they want to find their own voice, their howl? Oh, I think it's really important to spend some time uh, in – in quiet, and I think ideally outside somewhere, walking, 
uh, somewhere where other people might not be around. And I, I think that, I hate to use this word, but commune, <laughs> to commune with nature a little bit. Uh, I think it really helps you ground into who you are and, and why, why you, or how you want to show up in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say why you're here because who knows why, why we're all here. But I think that that quiet time spent alone in nature is a, a real gift for those of us who want to be a little more clear about our path. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as I use the word howl, of course, you, I, I, at some point I connected with Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> right. I don't know if you <laughs> had those thoughts as you were at some point in your in your book. That's kind of the urban howl. You know? Right, right. I actually read a beautiful piece that uh, mentioned him not too long ago, and it said that uh, it described him as being uh, frank and unapologetic about who he was, and I've kept that with me, that that's a key part of I think what we're all meant to do is be frank and unapologetic about who we are. I, I think that's what the wolf does. Mm-hmm. You know, it is what it is. Yeah. So part of this uh, I could see is casting off at least a bit of civilization, right? We're, we're, we're taught to, in social convention, uh, some of us are taught or pick up the message that we're supposed to be who others want us to be. And we, sure. And of course, we, at some, uh, in some levels, have to. To fit into society. Right. Is this casting off the fetters? And and how far should we go? (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. Um, I I was raised to be nice, polite, and respectful. And I think those are all appropriate things that we can can, uh, keep in our uh, arsenal of tools (laughs) in how we deal with the world. But... um, so I guess I would say I, I think it's really important to be true to your own self and nature and needs while remembering that you're a member of society. You're still part of a pack, part of a tribe, and there are you need to hone your behavior so that it's appropriate and helpful to the pack and the tribe. Mm. This might be a good time to bring in, and I have copied and pasted this. Um, I noticed in your acknowledgments... You talk about Doug Peacock. This is your acknowledgement. Doug Peacock, by inviting me into his home, scared and delighted me. <laughs> I, I'm honored to share small pieces of his experience on these pages. And I imagine I've had the opportunity to interview Doug Peacock a couple of times. It's not been on the phone. I haven't met him in person. Mm-hmm. But from his books and from his experiences and people writing about him, I can I can imagine him being kind of a wild man. I, what, what was your experience of Doug Peacock? He is just, uh, he's just a hoot. He's a crack up. And he's, uh, when I first drove up to his house, um, I saw this, this little eyes peeking out this window. (laughs) And then they disappeared. And I thought, Oh, my God, what am I getting into? And, uh, but then he opened the door and he was just delightful. He was very gracious. We sat at a, a big dining room table that had stacks of books all over it. And, uh, and he is just um, very uh, down to earth about the reality of the situation in which we live. Mm. And it's not the way he thinks we should be living, but it's what exists. Uh, he thinks we need to be much more thoughtful about how we actually live on this earth and take care of this earth. Um, but he also is uh, willing to... Um, 
acknowledge that you can't fight it all the time, mm-hmm. that you need to enjoy what we have and uh, do your best to try to get people to appreciate it, take care of it, conserve it, but um, that you can't spend all of your time fighting. And he strikes me, uh, you know, again, uh, not firsthand, you've had firsthand experience, as being authentic, right? I would um, say that. True to himself, and that's, mm-hmm. the, the, I guess that's part of what you're talking about. Right. With your howl, mm-hmm. being true to yourself, finding yourself, being true to yourself. Right. I think that's uh, a key piece of being a healthy, happy, healthy human. Mm-hmm. Now you, you seem to find yourself, uh, your authentic self, best in, in the wild, or out in nature, or, you know, on your bike and... Yes. Out there. Out there. Which is not totally unusual, but wouldn't describe everyone. No. Tell me about that. Well, and, and I have to add to that, I also find myself uh, on my couch <laughs> okay, a, with a book in hand. I mean, that's a quite lovely place to mm-hmm. be, too. And uh, I can explore different worlds that way, too. But there's just something, uh, again, you know, I can't. it's so difficult to put this into words, but to be in the outdoors... And to have this absence of human-made sound, um, it it just is a way of connecting with what seems more important in life. And so it'd just be sounds of nature. wouldn't be any humans around. Right. And, of course, where I ride, I'm a roadie, so there are cars that will pass me and motorcycles and other cyclists and uh, all of that. So I, I'm not completely away, I, and I am not a, I'm not one to go out into the wilderness all by myself, that kind of thing. But just um, like I, I, as I describe uh, the places I like to go best, they're the closest thing to wild I can get an hour away on my bicycle. Mm-hmm. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about wild. You, the, in your last chapter, you talk about wild and what it means to have wild places, and the fact that maybe we don't need, you know, wilderness wild to, to have these experiences. We'll explore some of those issues. I want to talk about being on the bicycle as well. I know a lot of people in our, in our listening audience are avid cyclists, including you've had a serious accident, I think. I've had a few. <laughs> yeah, which I, that's a hazard. Yeah, It I'll, is. I'll hear, we'll hear about that as well. Uh, Susan Imhoff Bird is my guest, and her book is Howl of Woman and Wolf. It's out from Tory House Press. More following the break. This week on Radio Lab. It's about pain and the body. The imagination. The faith. I know. You've healed me so many times at so many different things. Leave now in Jesus' name. Back won't be straightened in Jesus' name. We've all heard stories about how faith heals. Lo and behold, she was healed. This week we wonder, how does that work? Uh, there, there, there is a way that mommy's kiss is kind of a placebo effect. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Rachel Giza. Susan Faludi is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who's known for writing about feminism and women's rights. Next time on Q, we'll talk about how her views on gender changed when her father revealed that they identified as female. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Today at 1, right here on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com.
Thanks for listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams, we've reached the last segment with Susan Bird. Her book is Howl of Woman and Wolf. At a crossroads in her own life, she shares her personal triumphs, her self-doubt, difficult scenes from her past, such as caring for a son with cerebral palsy, uh, a husband whose hidden layers have built up a barrier, a long, dark night of pain while recovering from a severe bicycle accident, and she goes in search of the wolf. And uh, the book is called Howl for a Reason. We've been talking about that. Susan Bird has uh, been perfecting her own howl, which she says is getting to her own authentic self and suggests that for us as well. Let's talk a little bit about wilderness and wild. Um, and, and you have a whole discussion of this in your, in your last, uh, last chapter. Um, What have you talked about? Our need for wild places? Right. And uh, some people suggest that um, we can find wild in pots of plants on our balcony if we live in Manhattan. You know, but we need some kind of access to what is somewhat wild. But that can be in all different kinds of levels. And it doesn't Mm. necessarily need to be pure wilderness. Uh, What do we get from wilderness then? (sighs) Yeah. As far as um, oh, you know, personally, what to what? I, why, why do we need it? Why do we need it? I think that um, it it helps us understand our place in the world. That um, we are not the master of it all, and when we're out in wilderness, we see what has been uh, growing and thriving for millennia without us. Mm. And so, I think that it, it's humbling. But I, I think it helps us really kind of ground ourselves into we are just one small little aspect of what's going on. Mm. And you also talk about, and you quote some people, talking about the just the fact of wilderness. Oh, that... that can, can be restorative for us or helpful for exactly. us. Exactly. Just to know that these places exist, even if we're not able to travel to them. Mm-hmm. Many people aren't able to travel for financial reasons or physical reasons. And, and to just know that there's a Grand Canyon out there is sometimes enough to really do the same thing for us as standing in uh, the Sequoia Forest. Mm -hmm. Where do wolves fit into that then? Well, for me, it's, they are definitely a part of what is wild and created by something much more powerful than me. Mm -hmm. And yet we share a connection. Mm -hmm. You know, we all are here. We right. all have a right to be here, and yet I'm not in charge. And it's kind of a wonderful, as I said, humbling thing, but makes me feel part of something much bigger than me. Uh, there's a passage in the book, um, kind of grossed me out a little bit, but, uh, <laughs> but and you juxtapose, you juxtapose a scene of, uh, you could call it death, the, the ending of your first marriage, I think. And then immediately you go to the Department of Transportation, and they're, they're collecting carcasses. <laughs> Tell me about that. The bone pile there? The bone pile, the, yes. The, the, um, I didn't know this went on. Yeah. Well, this is actually part of this. It's a fabulous uh, coalition up there of state and federal agencies and community who are working together to try to um, help ranchers continue to exist when we're adding more predators to their environment. And so um, it's like a communal bone pile that the... the the coalition will come out and pick up your dead animal for you because when um, if your dog dies, it's not so hard to bury him on your property. But um, when you lose a 500-pound 
bowl, <laughs> it's not easy to um, d deal with that carcass, and it can cost hundreds of dollars to have someone come pick that up. So this coalition has worked together to um, work with the Department of Transportation to pick up dead animals from your property, whether they are wildlife that have been killed by a car and landed on your field, or a cow that keeled over from illness on your own property. So they compost these animals in this nice little area mm -hmm. off the main highway. And uh, yeah, it, it's, um, it's not something you see very often. Uh, and uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I do think we, as a society, we, we, we like to hold death at arm's length. This is so this, right. this coalition there. Right. And of course, if you're a rancher or if you're a conservationist or if you're a park ranger, you're, you're more familiar with this. Right, right. But it was a little shocking for me to watch this heifer uh, be rolled out from the back of this truck and then hauled over into a little bin where they covered it with compost and mm. then they'll stir it up every three months. <laughs> yeah. Then some people don't, I guess they don't subscribe to this. They want to take care of their animal a different, different way, well, kind they, of more memorialize them. I did hear, right, one story of a, a woman who's a rancher in that valley who does not participate and she likes to keep her animals there on her own property because she calls them family mm -hmm. and that's her way of honoring them. Yeah. So it's somewhat jarring to now ask you to talk about your son Jake, but but it's all, I, th I think it's it's a bit apropos because what you're talking about is we're, we're part of nature, right? right? And, and some, we, in civilization, we separate ourselves. Right. What do you talk about that? The difficulties all throughout his life, and then finally, he gets to a point where he's he's failing, right? Right. Um, it was uh, when he was little. Uh, doctors hate to give um, really negative news when they're not certain. And with brain damage in a baby, it can just go so many different ways. The brain is just an, an incredible, incredible thing that can recover from a huge damage but um so they didn't want to say your son will never do anything but um by the time he was a year and a half two years old it was quite clear that he was not going to be able to do much of anything and uh so at that point a doctor had told us that kids as severely challenged as Jake usually didn't make it out of their teens so we kind of had a heads up that it would be unlikely for him to live a really long time and it's usually pneumonia that takes him he had severe scoliosis that can uh, compromised his lungs, uh, but he couldn't walk, talk, communicate, make eye contact. He had a feeding tube and a seizure disorder and mm. a lot of things that made it um, challenging to care for, but yet he his nature was just a very sweet, sweet boy who just couldn't communicate with us. Mm. So you have this ritual that we that we had you read at the mm -hmm. beginning of the the book you mm -hmm. ride up into the the mountains mm -hmm. you and you really I don't know if every year releases ashes but uh, um, I, I I take his ashes with me everywhere mm -hmm. uh, when I ride <laughs> uh, so what what are you what are you doing there then what uh, what how does that help you how does that help I guess you remember him and I do and it just feels uh, like I'm I he knows I'm there and. Uh, and just returning some of his ashes each time to back to the soil just feels like a way of um, acknowledging that we're all just part of this earth. We're all in it together, and and it just uh, helps me helps me feel a connection to him when he's no longer here. Mm. Overall, what 
what kind of healing happened to you in the process of researching wolves and going through this whole journey? I think the the most important thing for me was, um, as I've kind of already mentioned, just that coming to an understanding that I get to be me. And, uh, and this is not just about me. It's about everybody. You know, we all get to be who we are. And, um, and that's I, I, really powerful for me to watch the wolves. Um, there was a time I went back to Yellowstone in the winter and had a wolf, had two wolves actually come within 40 feet of me trotting, running by on their way to a carcass. And, uh, and they're not out to do anything other than to play their play their role in the world, which is as a predator and to and uh, it's an important role in the environment. And I think we all need to respect that and to understand that of ourselves that we might not understand why we're here, but there probably is a purpose, mm-hmm. and that we need to honor and acknowledge who we are and be that person and contribute in whatever way that is to the world. Having gone through your journey, how would you suggest others, perhaps looking for themselves or want to reconnect? Uh, you know, not everybody's going to go write a book about wolves. <laughs> right, um, right. Uh, how, how to go about that? Um, I truly believe that getting out into nature is, is going to be beneficial to anyone at any point in their path. And whether it's um, walking in a city park or traveling a shoreline trail or, um, you know, a mi- there are plenty of mild trails in the canyons that I think most people are able to access. And, uh, or walking through your field, you know, or your backyard, or putting your hands in the soil. Or, but somehow connecting to that helps us, I think, have a deeper understanding of this bigger-than-us world. We just have a couple minutes left. I want to... S- cycle back, I guess now, pun intended, now that I recognize that, to cycling. Uh-huh. Um, you've had some serious accidents. I have. The, 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 you get back on the bike. This indicates <laughs> yes. your passion for, for, this, for this activity. What do, you, what do you get out of it? Um, I was actually thinking about that on my drive up here this morning because uh, I have done the Logan to Jackson ride a number of times, which starts right here in Logan. Mm-hmm. And so this town to me is where you bring your bike and then you go ride somewhere else. There's lots of other wonderful rides that are based here in Logan that I've done too. And um, I think what was really powerful for me, especially with that first ride, was a 200-mile ride, and I made it. I survived. I was capable of more than I thought I was. And that's what cycling does for me. It, it lets me know I can do more than I thought I could. Because climbing those hills is hard, you know. But then you get up to the top and you go, oh, my gosh, I did it. I am stronger than I knew. Mm. You have, uh, you have a, a blog, a website about this, the Tao of Cycling, is yes. it? Yes. Yeah, very good, very good. Uh, so we've been talking about wolves, and on your blog, which you can find at susanimhoffbird.com, uh, you you recommend five exceptional books about wolves. Yes. I don't know if you have those top of your head, or you could recommend one or two. or Most of them. Um, Rick McIntyre is a wildlife technician at Yellowstone, and he probably knows more about wolves than anyone, and he is out there basically 365 days a year. He's in communication with uh, wolf watchers throughout the park. Anyway, his book is called The Society of Wolves, and it is fabulous. He's also a photographer, so it's full of his photography. And it's just a really 
excellent primer on understanding wolves and then the history and then their nature and uh, the current state. So that's a fabulous one. And then the the classic is, of course, Barry Lopez's mm, right. Of Wolves and Men. Yeah, that's a wonderful book. And you get the whole list. Uh, go to SusanMHoffBird.com. Uh, also, there's five creative nonfiction books worth every minute you should spend with them. You're, you're a list maker. Like I said, I, I like that. So you can find you can find these lists. Uh, also, five illuminative books on how to be and five best ever books. Uh, so we'll just leave the mystery and have people go to the website. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've been talking with Susan Bird. Uh, her book is out from Tory House Press, Howl of Woman and Wolf. And uh, thanks for uh, joining us today. We hope you'll join us tomorrow for Access Utah. The swashbuckling adventures of Captain Ahab are retold this week when L.A. Opera on Air presents Jake Heggie's thrilling score based on Herman Melville's novel, Moby Dick. Tenor J. Hunter Morris is the obsessed captain who leads his seafaring crew in the pursuit of the mythical Leviathan, with James Conlon leading the L.A. Opera Orchestra and Chorus. This is Duff Murphy. Join us for L.A. Opera on Air. Join us Sunday night at 8 on Utah Public Radio. It's time now for Utah StoryCorps, everyday people sharing their story at the StoryCorps recording booth in Vernal in July of 2015. Dr. Dan Price is 95 years old and a veteran of World War II. He sat down with his wife Clara to talk about his time in the South Pacific. What well, three years I spent in uh, World War II on a destroyer escort in the Pacific. I was in five major battles, and then in June, Marines raised the flag on Mount Sarabachi. We were there and there. And I don't know if uh, anyone has read about the typhoon that was uh, happened all over the Philippines. That was December the 18th, 1944. I remember well because my birthday was just two days before that. Uh, we were right in the middle of it, and uh, the fuel, everybody was out of fuel. We were in the fueling area. And we had uh, Missouri and the, uh, the Enterprise and all the battleships and the CVEs and the, uh, all of those, I guess, 100, 100 ships. And we had a, a circle around that, which we called the convoy. And uh, during this storm, uh, Spence destroyer and the Cullahan, Cullahan and the hull destroyer all went down. And we were next door to the hull, but our engineers had enough sense to pump water into the, uh, the empty tanks and give us ballast a little, you know. And uh, anyway, I just uh, our ship was one that was just uh, solid one, either downstairs or up uh, top deck. And I wasn't going to be caught down in the bottom deck, so I got out and went to the top deck. And put my uh, got up to Radio Shack and got in the corner and put my feet against one wall and and not one minute I was down on my stomach and the next day, the thing I was on my back, but on that uh, uh, I put the radio on, on phone numbers on phone on my ears and listened to all of the trouble that they have and the CVE which is a converted uh, aircraft carrier. 
those poor guys over there, the planes were being uh, tipped over the bank and the sailors going with it, and they were trying to take some down the elevator, and uh, one of them caught fire, and all the whole crew was down on that uh, flight deck, I mean below the flight deck, and they were running back and forth to balance the ship so it wouldn't go completely over, and they were fighting fire and trying to balance the ship. It was really a, a horrible experience. But it was nice to get back and be one of them that, be able to be one of them that come back alive. This conversation was recorded at the StoryCorps recording booth in Vernal in July of 2015 and will be archived at the Library of Congress. Utah StoryCorps is made possible in part by our members and Memory Mark, helping families to preserve and relive precious memories that help keep us connected to the ones we love. Information at MemoryMark.com. Alisa Weilerstein grew up going to the Aspen Music Festival almost every summer of her childhood. She says she learned about music, she learned about life. I also made incredible friendships here, which I still really cherish. Alisa Weilerstein in concert and in conversation from Aspen on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.